the blast from our past network. Lock your doors, close your windows, turn out your lights, for chills and thrills await you. It's time for Podcasting After Dark with your hosts, Corey Stevenson and Zach Schaefer. Stay with a friend, say your prayers as grisly ghouls close in to seal your doom. Tonight's episode, The Go-Go Boys, the inside story of canon films, starring Menahem Golem and Yoram Globus. Meet Israeli duo Menachem Golan and Yoram Globus. They have a dream of taking over Hollywood with their company, Canon Films. And what kind of movies do they make? Some critics call them schlock films, but actually they're just plain low-budget movies. Did you ever make a $30 million movie? Never. I don't know what to do with 30 millions. I, I can make 30 mo- movies, maybe. We thought that it will conquer the world. You knew there was going to be guns, you knew there was going to be chicks, you knew there was nudity, there was violence. Canon was synonymous with awesome in the 80s. They can leave the theater feeling a little bit better than when they went into the theater because the good guy does come out on top. I think you're going to be surprised how anxious the networks would be to do business with you. And he says to me in French, Vous êtes Monsieur Goran? And he rubbed my head. Karin, bring me Bloodsport. I'm going to make you a movie star. They were experts at financing it, selling it, and then making it. They were selling before and then making after. Les panneaux d'affichage qui envahissaient la croisette, c'était Canon qui débarquait. Pour moi, faire des films, c'est une grande histoire d'amour. To date, they have not made what I would say is a really fine film. You have to make hits in order to survive. Just didn't happen for them. They call us go-go boys. Go, go. <laughs> Please go, go. Hey, Sleazy, Sleazy C. This is the man I want to talk to, Sleazy. I've got 49 movies I want to make with you. How about you do this with me, okay? And we'll make sure that uh, yeah, I get all the profits... And it will be biggest success. It will be bigger than the, 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 the Rocky franchise. It will be bigger than the Alien franchise. It will be, be bigger than Ishtar. You know Ishtar, yeah? Yeah? It's good, yeah? <laughs> and if I'm Yoram in this equation, where the fuck do I get all the money? <laughs> Who cares? It'll just happen. It'll just happen. <laughs> What's up, everybody? It is, well, first of all, Technically, in the scheme of things, when it comes to podcasting after dark, proper episodes minus uh, TV Obscura, this is our 100th episode of podcasting after dark. Proper. Oh my gosh. Uh, hey, hey, I have got a great idea. No, hold on, Manahim. <laughs> you can just chill out for a little bit. We'll come back to you later. Um, it's our 100th episode. It's our 100th episode. Uh, I'm so stoked about that. But. In the spirit of shaking things up, we are doing things differently this month. We're not breaking down a movie proper. We are doing what we did last year. It's become our annual thing. It's our annual documentary, obscure documentary series. Well, how, what would you call it, Corey? Maybe augumentary? 
Mm. Ooh, I like that. Augmented episodes <laughs> of Podcasting After Dark. How about that? Um, I, it's me, Sweet Sexy Z, Tiny T, joining me as always, my beautiful, bodacious co-host, Corey Stevenson, Sleazy C. Happy 100th episode, dude. Oh, thanks, buddy. And yeah, like you said, it's it's out there with the TV Obscuras and then the, you know, the weird little solo stuff that I've done and stuff like that. Um, it's like we're way past it. We're almost like at like almost 200 episodes. But in our internal like numbering system that you guys will never see and probably never yeah. matters. This is a big this is a big monumental event for me and Zach because this is yeah. our triple digit uh, proper, you know, reviews and everything. And boy, oh boy. I, I mean, did you ever think when we started you know, numbering our episodes, you know, and everything. Did you ever think we were get gonna get to one hundred, dude? I did because you know I'm dreamer. <laughs> I dream of things, and who cares what the execution is? If you if you bankrupt something or not, who cares? If you have a dream, you 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 make it happen. You know, and that's what we did. We uh, sorry, but now I'm just. I'm the one talking. Oh, no, no, no. I took over a podcasting after dark. I, <laughs> I, I bought it from you. Yeah, seriously. With what money, Yoram? Yoram, where's the money? Yoram, we need our money, Yoram. <laughs> no, dude, I, I, I never thought, well, I did think that, uh, you know, we'd be doing this for some time to come and we continue to steamroll and, and chugga, chugga, chugga along. The coal in the engine is burning hot and there's plenty of it. We're not going anywhere. We continue to produce the best version of our show that we can on a regular basis and i'm just happy to be a part of it dude me too my friend and i'm really starting to love august um because i thought last year was great i very much enjoyed our two documentaries and then when i'm sitting here watching both of these today and taking notes and everything i'm just like man i'd love a good like movie documentary or a good like retrospective i, I love this kind of stuff and i also thought it was Kind of interesting that the parallels. Uh, so last year, uh, yours was a documentary called My Best Fiend, and it was Werner Herzog and Klaus Kinski. And Klaus Kinski. And it was it was not just one movie. It was kind of a, a full career or just, you know, them two together, uh, which is interesting because the Go-Go Boys, the one you're discussing, is sort of similar. And then mine was basically just a look at one movie in particular. And again, last year with uh, Lost Soul, The Doomed Journey of uh, Richard Stanley's Island of Dr. Moreau, the longest title in existence. Um, and now next week or ne next episode, because we're going to be recording these documentaries back to back. We'll just announce it now because by this point you guys have all watched Wrap Up After Dark and know what's coming. And we're going to be discussing or I'm going to be leading the charge for Jodorowsky's Dune. So it's another singular like movie thing. And I kind of find it interesting how uh, maybe it's a maybe it's some kind of a, a an insight into what you and I sort of like about things because my favorite documentaries are the ones like on aliens like something that's just singular but it seems to me yours are kind of more nebulous is, is that correct or is this just a a chance occurrence that you're doing the go-go boys you know and you did my best fiend last time a little bit of both I do love umbrella documentaries about a particular genre Case in point, the In Search of uh, Ultimate Action Movies or whatever it's called, In Search of Horror. Darkness, I love those yeah, retrospective things. kind yeah. of things. Uh, I, but I do love a good overall making of kind of doc, like uh, 
the Richard Stanley one is, but that's like a descent into madness. And dare I say the Jodorowsky <laughs> one is very similar. Yes. <laughs> it, it's really wild. I, I mean, I chose uh, the, the one we're doing tonight, the Go-Go Boys, the inside story of Canon films, um, kind of based on the fact that we've reviewed so many Canon movies on our show. And I love Canon films that we've covered. Well, we'll, we'll get to what we've covered towards the tail end of this episode because at the tail end of this episode we've got something special kind of like a, a top five uh but we'll get to that later um a few years ago another canon documentary came out called electric boogaloo the wild untold story of canon films now i believe that one actually was d- distributed first um because i think the gogo boys didn't come out it was a little delayed because mvd uh produced it put it out uh mvd you know, retro films or whatever, rewind their, yeah. that label, yeah, has, which rewind. has the cool slip cover with the poster inside, blah, blah, blah. And has a great uh, logo on the, the movie. It's like a VHS logo and everything. It's really yeah, it's awesome. it's really cool. They, they put a little bit more time into the production, I think, with the interviews and such. Though, so, so that one, even though it says on IMDb that it came out the same year, I feel like it came out after. Yeah. I mean, we watched Electric Boogaloo when it came out, so probably 2014. I don't remember this being even an option. I remember this came out on Blu-ray only like a couple years ago or like very recently. Now, we love the Electric Boogaloo one. We had a great time with it. But watching this one now, I don't recall if the Electric Boogaloo one actually interviewed um, Menahem or Yoram. Um, I think they had, I think they had archival footage, but this one I think is actually, I think it's more of a sanctioned version by them. I mean, if you know any better, let me know. I believe so. So really quickly, I, the, the deciding factor between which documentary of these two to choose, uh, I chose the go-go boys because though I love electric boogaloo, we both do. It's more of a, you know, um, highlight reel of the canon films and there are interviews with a plethora of people including um oh gosh uh from star trek the next generation she played the uh the the, the psychic or the um I think oh, her name is yeah uh, dana troy's character yeah i believe so um she was in uh, De- one of the death wish movies and gets a really pretty uh you know messed up version of her experiences with Menachem. So, uh, that, but that, so that version being more of like a highlight reel, which I love again, I'll stress that. And, and I think everyone should go check that out. It's a perfect companion piece to this because then you can see more kind of details and other people's perspectives of Canon. This one is very similar to my best fiend. It's an intimate portrait of two, uh, individuals, Menachem Golan and, uh, Yoram Globus, who, uh, you know, are practically brothers. Um, you know, they're related and, and through like, you know, they're cousins or something like yeah, that. Yeah, they're, we'll they're first cousins. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, but you know, the thing is, like, it, it is similar in that My Best Fiend sense because it, it shows this passionate, uh, like, compulsion to do something. And that can be a good thing and a bad thing. And yeah. it works for one particular person, just like the other documentary, My Best Fiend, and it didn't work for the other person. So, um, you know, it's it's it actually was surprising because I'm not going to lie. I watched this for the first time the other night. I'd had had it sitting in my DVD shelf, you know, for a, a year or so. And then finally watched it because of our episode. We're because we're going to talk about it tonight. 
and I was really surprised at um, the the direction that the documentary went in. I, I expected it to be more of like not exploitive, but like more of a hit piece, more like '80s, all about the '80s. But it's not. It's no. It's a true biography of these two men. It is, but you know, to the point of you know, Electric Boogaloo might have some more alternate perspectives on things. This one For does. Sure. This one does seem to be very much, I don't know if it's controlled, but there's a scene later on when the interviewers are asking Menahem um, about some of his failures and he doesn't want to talk about him. And, you know, he's like, no, I won't talk about that. I erased that from my mind. And I wonder if, you know, maybe some of the, the bad stuff that maybe other people mentioned in Electric Boogaloo, things that might have not been the easiest for them, he might have just erased them from his mind. But I do think that, whether it was by design or just by his lack of wanting to talk about it, uh, this this does seem like a very positive piece on on Menahem and Yoram. I think so. Yeah. If you go into, you know, the um, the comments uh, on IMDb, or if you go on, uh, the, especially on like the reviews on I think on Amazon, they there were some of the user reviews where they're like, well, th- it was good, but they didn't, they didn't talk about the shady stuff they did. Well, yeah. yeah, there's not a lot of shady stuff that's mentioned in this at all. However, I think you get a pretty good picture as to why they're not working together now. And Manahim is not working on movies in the United States anymore. Yeah. And so uh, really quickly, the overall synopsis of this film, according to IMDb, Uh, The Go-Go Boys, The Inside Story of Canon Films, is a documentary about two Israeli-born cousins, Menachem Golan and Yoram Globus, who, in pursuit of the American dream, turned the Hollywood power structure upside down, producing over 300 films and becoming the most powerful independent film company in the world. Up close and personal, the film examines the complex relationship between two contradictory personalities whose combined force fueled their success and eventual collapse. I think it's a pretty actually pretty decent, accurate description of what this doc is about. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah, no, that that is a good one. And it's um, yeah. And th- this documentary does span a quite a bit of period of time. Um, I do want to point out, you said, you know, they, they made um, over 300 movies together. My God, 46 of which were made in just the year 1986, which uh, also, too, at the end of the documentary. And guys and gals, you know, we're not going to be breaking this down, you know, scene by scene or anything. So. I, we hope that you actually watch this and that this is a discussion that you listen to after you've seen it, you know, as a sort of, yeah. a, you know, an extension of the documentary. Um, but, you know, it, it's it's interesting. They made so many, you know, of these movies together. Um, by the end of the movie, Menahem and Yoram were actually like sort of together and everything. And, and you can see that, you know, they still sort of talk, but it, obviously they're not as close. But Yoram does mention, he's like, why didn't we like, then they're watching their movies that they created together at the end of it and they're enjoying them. And they're like, and he's like, why didn't we slow down and actually enjoy the process and actually enjoy the fruits of our labor? But I, you know, I've worked with somebody who is that sort of creative energy like Menahem is, but it's also that there is no rest. Rest is death. And Menahem had that, has this personality trait that I've seen in other people where his default state is go 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 go, and and like and to not go is to die, 
And and I know other artists that are like that, and I think you get burned out very quickly. And I think there's a reason Menahem, I think he was older anyways, but he looks a lot older than Yoram does. And I think Yoram didn't have that same burning the, the, the candle at both ends sort of thing going on with him. No, no, I agree. And I, I, I think, yeah, the, the reason they explain in the doc why, and yeah, and I think I, I appreciate what you said about uh, this kind of being a companion piece to the, the doc itself. This is not available streaming anywhere, first of all. So uh, supporting small businesses, supporting physical media, go out and buy the Blu-ray uh, if you like biographies of filmmakers, because that's exactly what this is. So go out and buy it from MVD. Uh, you can go buy it on their website. You know, third-party distributors like Amazon, I think, sell it as well. But but th- you have to seek out the physical copy because it's nowhere to be found digitally, which actually is really refreshing. Yeah, uh, it to is. be honest with you. But you had mentioned that um, you know they put out all those movies in '86. They also lost ninety million dollars between '85 and '86. Yeah. So uh, this was a company like you, the doc starts out it actually takes a really good chunk of time uh of the 90 minute doc there's like broken into like maybe quarters i'd say yeah or, or maybe uh thirds or not because thir- it goes yeah like a thirds because it goes in order like it starts in, in tel aviv then it goes to la and then it talks about like the post la era so i'd say thirds yeah 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 the first uh third half is is really focuses on their time in tel aviv israel when they both were growing up uh how menahem was like you know, he describes himself as this thin boy who made primitive movies from photos, you know, and um, like he would take photos of, of his mother and like other things and he would make movies out of it. He want, he was selling, he was making movies when he was a child. And to that point, I mean, it opens with him talking about like, if you want to make movies, you basically have to, and I'm going to, I'm paraphrasing it. You basically have to not do anything else, like not want to do anything else. You have to give yourself completely to the movies. And they do show that that comes at a detriment. Even Menahem and Yoram talk about that detriment. And the detriment is that, you know, they were very much not present, you know, during their kids growing up. And, and I think in even both of their wives and, it, Canon Films was everything to them, but you, I mean, that's how you make 46 movies in one year. But going back to, you know, the discussion about the, the first third of the documentary, I liked, I felt like I got more out of that than I did the Electric Boogaloo one because I don't remember them really diving. They obviously mentioned they came from Israel and Tel Aviv and all this kind of stuff, but I liked seeing chunks of the movies that they were working on back then because. Um, we think of canon as these bombastic movies, but they started by making, trying to make like, you know, quote unquote, you know, respectable films and whatnot. And I also found it interesting that their one big breakout was what lemon popsicle, which was kind of like a sort of a last American version, virgin, uh, you know, sex teen romp comedy but in israel and i'm it's it's not shocking that that being their biggest success over there's it's also what brought them to the states that they would try to replicate that with last american virgin i wish the documentary discussed more about last american virgin because that it almost didn't even get discussed they showed some shots of it but they almost didn't even mention it well if you want to know more about last american virgin you can listen to our interview with diane franklin yep. and also on two dollar late fee which there are two separate interviews that yep. we did with diane franklin 
Um, go back in the archives and you can check those out because Last American Virgin is actually a remake of Lemon Popsicle, the same director and I believe same writer, uh, oh. but definitely the same director. So that oh. was their for, foray, you know, oh, let's just take this this thing that worked for us because they talk about the success of Lemon Popsicle, but they went ahead and pretty much straight up did that. Wow. I did. I, I guess I kind of maybe forgot about that piece of information or whatever, but uh, that's fascinating, especially since I just watched Last American Virgin for the first time about two or three months ago. Um, my wife and I watched it, and we both walked away from that film absolutely despising it. Uh, not at all what I was expecting personally. I thought I was going to like it, but this isn't a critique on that movie. I'm just going to say I was surprised at the lack of mention of Last American Virgin in The Go-Go Boys. So do I, because I think it was a pretty decent success when it first came out, uh, at least on home video. And they really didn't talk about the how successful they were on home video. All they did was talk about the theater stuff. This doc is one-sided in one sense. However, just the simple line that Corey brought up earlier, where the, 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 the interviewer is asking Menahem about his failures, and Menahem does not want to talk about them, just putting that line in there showing his emotion behind that is very telling and it kind of gives you a better i think it gives you a pretty good insight into uh how he treated this business or lack thereof because i don't think he really viewed it as as a business initially he he he's so caught up in the art and the idea of being a mogul and making these he never looked at it from a numbers perspective where his cousin Yoram, Yoram comes yeah. into play and Yoram as a kid is is selling tickets he's making he's like tr he's making money as like a six-year-old which is really cute too to think about you know that this little kid from way back when you you listen to you, you know people parents ask their kids all the time what do you want to be when you grow up you know and oftentimes kids say the astronaut police officer whatever firefighter movie star unfortunately now it's like youtuber and you want to be like um, that was not a slap. That was just a pretend. And, uh, you know, so, but little, it's very rare that you hear someone say, I want to do this as a child. And then they grow up and they become that thing. Yes. No. And, and I do want to talk really quick, um, about the whole him not wanting to discuss his failures. And I think that that kind of goes back to, I think it was the Apple where he talked about like, that was like their first big bomb in the U S and he was so Menahem was so distraught by it. Like he was literally considering, you know, suicide, you know, yes. how much of that was actually true. I kind of believe him because I do think he's Me a too. passionate artist and Yoram is the one that sort of quote unquote, you know, talked him off the ledge and was like, there will be more movies. And, when you know you find that out at the beginning of the movie and then at the end of the movies when he's talking about oh i don't want to talk about my failures and i'm like oh i think that apple uh, event that that thing that happened in his life when a the apple was a giant bomb i think that's insight into menahem i think i think he like you said he didn't view this as a business he viewed this as an artistic playground for him. I do think that Menahem is like has an artist's soul. Like he's a sensitive artist's soul, um, and and I think that's why it affected him so much. And that's also why, I mean, it kind of goes to like 
you know, I mean, we're creatives. I don't, I, I mean, I love, please guys, leave us a five-star review on, on Apple and Spotify, but I kind of sometimes don't read them because I also don't want to know either because I'm an artist. If I see something, I don't want to internal, I'm going to internalize it, you know, like that's the thing. And so I did feel kind of like connected to Menahem and like in his reaction to the failure of the Apple. Yeah, no, I, I, I feel you on that because I get where he's coming from. Um, it's very similar to the Jodorowsky documentary that we'll talk about in the next episode where these artists don't understand necessarily that unfortunately the filmmaking industry is strictly a business at this point. And maybe it, maybe it always has been, but if you want to be successful to the lengths that Menahem wanted to be, he had to view it from a more realistic business perspective versus like his brother, like his cousin did. Um, he didn't. And ultimately that led to his downfall and they, they, you know, they detail the whole thing. I, I, you pointed out, you, you, you he mentioned uh, like dreaming about making the movie. And I wrote down the quote, he said, and I want to do it two different ways. I want to do it from his perspective, and then I want to read it as the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes, and see which one's more inspiring. Okay. Dream about the movie. Steal your movie. Make your hunt. Take your money and make a movie. Right? That's what he says. Pretty much directly like that. And then American Dream would be like, dream about that movie, baby. Steal your money. Make your hunt. Take your money. Make a movie. <laughs> I would listen thing. to the American dream. <laughs> My hand is touching your hand through the TV, baby. Um, so I think that, you know, he says that, and he says that in the scene. And I just have to point it out because we've interviewed so many people on, on our show and $2 late fee. He's sitting at this interview. His shirt's like barely tucked in. One of his shoes is untied. He like looks very disheveled when he's supposed to be in this professional setting. His cousin is interviewed in the same area. Yoram looks great. Yoram looks great. He's taking super good care of himself. Menahem looks like, you know, he just rolled out of bed. Every shot they show from archival footage is him, like, kind of laying down or, like, like, slumped over very lazily. You know, and, and he's not that guy. He's not a lazy person because he's a go-getter. But it's just this, there's a level of sadness there. Yeah. You know, when you go to someone's house... And they're, they've got their home filled with crap, like just stuff, you know, boxes and trash and like things they don't need. And you just you feel the heaviness of like, man, this person is needs some help. You know, uh, I get that sense from him looking at him, you know, because he's got his eyes are welled up through this whole thing throughout the whole thing, talking about the good times and some the bad times. You know, we reflect when he reflects on the failures that he had as a father and as a husband, you know, that's, well, he'll kind of mention that he was not a good parent because he was so driven, like you mentioned. Um, But you let, you get this level of sadness because he never reached that thing that he wanted. He never grabbed the ring that he ultimately was trying to get. Yoram, on the other hand, it's very balanced, I think, in this way, too. I think the doc does a really good uh, job of showing their both men equally because they both had a very they had a 50 50 part in this. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, you know, Yoram had some he had failures, too, that were not 
necessarily his fault. MGM. One in particular, a guy, yeah, MGM debacle. Um, but he's doing really well for himself and ca- always did. You know, he gave Menahem a, 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 a Menahem. He he gave Menahem a golden ring, base a golden uh, parachute when he when Cannon folded. Yeah, when they folded, and that got pissed away too. I think. Well, and the thing is, when when they folded, he like Yoram was talking about like yeah he or when he left essentially, um, he gave Menahem like you know X amount of dollars for his half. Okay, then he also like like didn't have to, but he secured him like a thirty five thousand or thirty five million dollar line of credit for for another move. Like just he's like, look, I'm not gonna leave you in a lurch. I'm gonna you know I'm gonna actually. I was like that was. That was a class act right there. Um, this documentary made me love both these guys. I I, I do enjoy Menahem. I, I like his energy. I like his his artistic perspective and, and just making movies at just any chance you get whatsoever. And he's always and he's passionate about movies. But I also really liked Yoram because he was realistic. He knew what he was doing, and you know he had dreams and goals, and he tried to accomplish them. And I think he did a great job, and he seems to bounce back from from hard times because he just knows how to, you know, do stuff and everything. You know, makes he knows how to find money, which is just crazy. But you can definitely right. tell that post them together, Menahem always needed Yoram more than Yoram ever needed Menahem. Yes, I agree. I feel like Menahem, he kind of pretty much says it too. He wanted to create a, like a legacy for himself. He wanted to make. A lot of movies for a little bit amount of money versus like one movie for a lot of money. You know, he wanted to have this catalog to the point where he wanted to take over the world. Did he have a good business sense? I think he did. He just needed to listen more and he didn't listen. He was not good at like listening to other people. He was more about like doing, doing, doing and telling, telling, telling. Yeah, yes, he needed a break, and Yoram, they mentioned at one point, Yoram tried to get him to just take a six-month vacation, just relax, get your, you, and you have to do that. As an artist, as a creative, you also need to stop creating for a little bit, to try to get some ideas and everything, um, but, you know, like, also, too, out of their massive catalog, they never had, like, that huge, huge hit, and, you know, I and I even, even they even mention. You know, we should have slowed down and put more money into Superman 4. You know, like, that could have been their giant hit. But no, every like, everything, it was spread too thin. Everything was spread way too thin. You can't make 46 movies in one year and have pretty much any of them be great. They're all going to be at a certain level, and that's what canon became known for. Even that one guy who was, like, the head of... Um, what was it? Universal or something? Uh, yeah, oh, Tom yeah. Pollock. Tom oh Pollock. Oh my God! Who's, <laughs> whose eyes? I, man, I'm sorry. Into anybody who's ever suffered that or has that, his eyes go in two different directions, and you're like, which eye do I look at? And the fact that this guy was the head of a of a studio, you know, he was an exec, making decisions and having meetings with people. Hoofa. I don't. Who? Where do you look? I, dude, and and they are literally going in opposite directions. Um, but he did say at one point that when he was the head of of Universal, um, they made twenty movies a year, and that's Universal. So Canon making forty six movies in one year is insane. But at the same time, you know, they did bust the studio system. They came in there and were like, "We're going to do our own studio system," and they did for a second. 
they created something that was pretty amazing and that was just i think through them them together and this idea and you know they, they don't get into it too too much but they do address it, you know, the, this business model that they created at Cannes Film Festival where they would sell a poster before they had the movie, you know, whereas Cannes is usually for selling movies that are already made and they were selling movies based on posters. And then so that's one aspect that kind of made them different. You know, they would have this idea and they would sell that idea before the movie was made. Um, and another thing they would do is like, oh, you want Death Wish 4? Well, you're going to have to take this other movie Two and so we know you know Death Wish Four is going to make you a shit ton of money. Well, this one's going to make you a shit ton of money. Also, I mean it won't. But like that's yeah. what they did. They would sell them as package deals. And I mean I don't know if that was you know they don't tell you if that was Yoram's idea or if Menahem's idea. I'm sure it was Yoram's. Um, but they did have a spice, man. They had a spice to them that that I think also too. I mean, you know, it's it's a it's a boys club, you know, it's it's a in Hollywood and everything. It's a it's an elite club. I think they yeah. came in there and shook things up. And I think people weren't too too thrilled about that. No, I agree. And I'm a firm conspiracy theory believer in in studios screwing people over and, um, you know, so that so that the things don't get changed. And and I'm sure and he was a rebel. He and he had brought a different perspective and I'm sure he was loathed and detested. And I'm sure there were backdoor meetings to try to, you know, find ways to get him out. Um, not every kind of loud mouth, bombastic person is a jerk, like someone who used to run our country. Uh, <laughs> you know, but this, you know, he and Menahem uh, it, on the Electric Boogaloo documentary, you can get the, the, the other side of, of his reputation from people in the business. I think Alex Winter was actually interviewed in that too, because I think he was in one of the Exterminator movies, maybe the first one. Um, but based on this documentary, and again, if you want to see highlights of many of these movies, go watch the Electric Boogaloo one, because this doesn't do that. This so this shows little clips here and there, but it's more like interviewing people and showing the, the two go-go boys. Um, you know, you brought up the, the posters, that he would sell things with posters. Um, he also had like uh, there's a shot of marquees of like upcoming movies that Canon's releasing. And one of them had Al Pacino on it, but Al Pacino was never even signed to that movie, you know, or movies that never got made. But they would like say, well, this is who's going to be in it. And, you know, uh, this is the name of the movie and this is how it's going to this is the plot line of it. To me. OK, now give me money. Let's make this movie like that's how they would sell movies back then. They don't do that now. Full Moon Entertainment, I think, kind of took that book and ran with it for a little bit where Charles Band would go in and sell movies to get money from Blockbuster so he could, you know, finance a film that would go directly to Blockbuster. Full Moon was putting out a, a movie a month for a while, and that was unheard of. So to do 46 in one year is insane, and it shows... Um, you know, I at the end of this, uh, I brought it up earlier, but at the end of this uh, episode, we'll we'll be bringing up our top five canon films and every single one of them that I made a list of that I love. They're all flawed in some way. And I've always said this about canon movies. They're their movies like cult wise are, are held in a high echelon, certain films, you know. But all of them have something about them that is like, well, I would have fixed that or I would have trimmed that. They never feel polished. 
Canon movies never feel polished. It, yeah. As, as good as they are, they never feel polished. Because you can't polish them 46 movies in one year. No. And, and real quick, guys and gals, before I forget, um, go listen to our interview with Catherine Mary Stewart because we do talk to her about the Apple. Um, they do spend a lot of time, or probably the most amount of time, it's still not a lot, but probably the most amount of time on one singular movie, and that's Electric Boogaloo. I'm sorry. And that's Breaking. Breaking, yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> because, I mean, I guess it makes sense because it was their first hit, um, you know, to, to begin with. And, you know, and like and I said, they didn't have any hits. Yes, they had a lot of movies that made back their budget, but a studio normally operates. They're expecting, like, eight movies to bomb and two of them to be, like, mega hits. Like, so when you watch it, when you go to the you know, summer of 94 or whatever, whatever year Jurassic Park came out, you know, yeah. Dr- Jurassic Park for the studio, that was the one that funded every other movie that bombed that studio came out that year. So yeah. there's a lot of movies that Canon put out that, yes, did make their budget back. Yes, made, like, money on VHS sales and, and you know, rentals and all this kind of stuff. But they never had like their Jurassic Park. They never had their giant blockbuster movie that could really infuse some cash into the system. No, because what they do is they'd make a bunch of money on something and then turn around and like do three or four more projects that would fail. So they lose a bunch of money, no matter how much money they made off that big one, you know. And it's cool that they profile break in. Uh, they interviewed JCVD for for a, for a minute, and he realized this is why this guy. When he does interviews, they're very short. Because yeah, he's, he's very <laughs> he's very expressive. There's very a lot expressive. Of, his, his shorts were very short, and he kind of he was moving around a lot. And I was like, "Are we gonna see his balls?" <laughs> we almost did. I know. Um, you know, they they interview Michael Dudikoff, obviously from the, the the American Ninja movies. He was one of their stars, and it's it's a sad, somewhat sad moment. Uh, no, it, it it's a sad moment when he brings up the fact that as the studio is going down. He went down with it because he was like their guy. He, yeah. He he rode or died with them, you know. Um, they interview uh, John Voight before he went off to Cuckoo Town, and there was a time, ladies and gentlemen, before John Voight was a kook, that he was an Academy Award winning nominated actor for so many movies. And when he did the movie Runaway Train with um, for Cannon with Eric Roberts and Rebecca De Mornay. That was considered a huge hit for them. Yeah, because um, he, like, he won Golden Critically. Globe for Best Actor in it. Yeah, it was it was it was heralded for its critical success. I don't know if it was necessarily a financial success. And Corey's right; they did make a lot of money on these movies. They and I, but again, they would turn around and blow all that money on something else. What I love about them, one of the many things that I love, I think specifically about Menahem is he made movies for an audience. He didn't make it necessary. He did make he did want to make movies for that that prestige and, and and award, but the majority of his films he made to make an audience laugh, cry, you know, get shocked, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's why he made movies. He made he loved the idea of what cinema was. So when when he invests all his money into movie theaters, that makes total sense because video tapes and video stores is not where a wide audience is enjoying their movies and he like i i get why he loved that you know cinema yeah. paradiso is all about that that little kid who sees the movies 
with the audience and everyone's going crazy and he's like i want to make movies that's yeah. exactly what happened man, to menahem and and he's he's a showman i think he's a consummate showman and i think that yeah he wanted the prestige and everything but i think at the end of the day what he, all he ever wanted to do was just make movies period and i liked that interview um that they showed where you know the guy was asking about all the money you know he's lost or or he actually was talking about that was the one talking about you know more of a critics he's not really a critic darling and uh you know even Cisco and Eber are like you know this is trash yada 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 but he's like but I like how Menahem and he always seems to roll with any critiques um except for when the the director was asking him you know on this documentary um but he 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 says like I'm not I'm not doing it for the critics I'm doing it for the audience I'm doing it for the people who are paying the tickets and they are paying tickets they they're buying it so I'm doing something right um, but I do know I'm sure deep down inside he would also like to be viewed as a legitimate filmmaker and not just you know uh, you know a, a cult movie guy for midnight cinemas but. To, you know, just to let you guys know sort of the, also the difference between this and Electric Boogaloo, um, like Zach mentions, Electric Boogaloo has a lot more like scenes and stuff from canon movies. This has a lot of like interviews, like archival interviews. This has a, like, a lot of like home video from can and them making deals. And I was like, that's really cool. I like seeing that behind the scenes stuff a lot. Yeah, there's a really funny moment where they talk about how they had their meetings during lunch. They were always eating. They were always eating 24-7, but they got the job done. And there's there's a scene where Aaron Spelling, yeah, you know, the guy who uh, created 90210, for example. And, and created and Tori sitting, Spelling. Yeah, yeah, unfortunately. He's sitting on a couch with a paper plate yeah. with his lunch yeah. in, a, in a group of guys having a business meeting. And it's all being filmed. It's so funny. We've interviewed people on our show who have met. Or who've dealt with Menahem, uh, and specifically Menahem, not necessarily Yoram, and they always describe him the same way. You know, this very bombastic, and you know the way JCVD tells his story about the first time that he met Menahem and how he got his gig with Bloodsport. Bloodsport wouldn't have happened if JCVD hadn't hustled. Yeah. Um, and and also, you know, Menahem looked at him and didn't see anything in him. This is a old story; it's been told a million times. But he gave him blood sport because it's like that was the that was lying around basically. Um, but yeah, I love that footage too. I love the footage of like at con or or the big party that they have when they open up their their uh, Canon Pictures building. You know, they spent all this money on getting a and like sixty minutes did a story on on them. Yeah. They're showing footage from the sixty minutes episode. Um, but you know, as this as this doc goes as this documentary goes on. Uh, and they talk about the critics, the critics were so critical to a film back in the day. Nowadays, not so much. People are going to go to movies now. I like, for example, you know, let's say Meg 2 or whatever. It gets a 14% in Rotten Tomatoes. People are going to see it whether they whether it got 14% or whether they got an A+. Plus. Who cares? Zach's know just bringing this up because Zach's going to go see it because Zach wants to see Meg too. Yeah, yeah, I do. And, and you know, and and you I know why. Too. I do too. I don't give a I, shit I know what you it do. gets rated. I, I don't care anymore. Yeah. Like there was a time I didn't care about reviewers back in the day. I've I never, read the review. I've never I've, cared, dude. I've never cared about what someone else thinks of a movie. Art is... I've never wanted someone to tell me what they think of a movie yet. That's now our entire job is to tell other people what we think of movies. But I say watch every movie for yourself and don't well, listen to what anyone says. 
I think a big difference between us and 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 someone like a uh, you know Rex Reed or whatever, because uh, that guy can take a flying dump. He you know well first of all they were getting paid off by the studios. Some yeah. of them were not all of them. Yeah. Uh, but you know and all and some of them were failed filmmakers who never made it and they were just bitter. You know we're we're the first ones to say you know it doesn't matter if we like it or not. If you like it, that's all that matters, right? But the reviewers were so critical back in the eighties. Well. I guess up until like the nineties and early two thousands, because uh, that can make or break a movie nowadays. Not so much. I don't think it necessarily matters. Um, but he like, I think Menahem was like, he didn't care about those people. He was also so much in denial about certain things. You know, there were times when he would, he was called out on a talk show for a certain amount of money that he lost. And he's like, no, we are a multi-million dollar business. And I'm like, really? Are you? Oh yeah. Really? He mentioned we were like incorrectly, the, the company was incorrectly evaluated or something. And I, but I think that's, that goes back to him. I think the, the, the moment of vulnerability was the Apple failing. That was, that's what's really going on inside of him. Him being distraught by that, I think is, an accurate insight into Menahem. I think when he says, oh, the company was different value, I think that's all just, he, and, and he even says it, he even says it when the, the director's like, let's talk about the failures. And he goes, yeah. you can talk about the failures, I can't. And now he doesn't directly say it, but this is like, it's kind of like magical thinking. The idea is, you know, if you if you practice magic, it's also, it's not only important that you believe what you're doing, you also quote unquote derive power from other people believing that you're doing. And I understand what he says. Like, I can't say that you can talk about the failures if you want. I can't. And I get it. It's, and he doesn't even, he doesn't guarantee he doesn't even think he's thinking in magical practices, but that is. And, and, and I do believe he's a magician. Like he, he's a creative, like creativity just flows through him. So I totally get that. I understand that he kind of has to spin things a certain way. Again, you can't make 46 movies in one year and have any doubt about what you're doing. You have to have nothing but pure fucking confidence and gusto. And that is what 99% of Menahem is, gusto and confidence. Hey everybody, Corey here. I just want to let you know that we'll be right back after these short messages. Hey everybody, I'm Tim. And I'm Dean. And we're the hosts of Talking Back. We're a retro-based podcast covering movies, comics, video games, and more. Check us out every Monday where we hit the rewind button and dig into some of our favorite content from the past. We like to keep things fun, lighthearted, and informative. Do you feel like you need more nostalgia in your life? then check out Talking Back. We're available everywhere podcasts are found. Have you been wondering where's the beef? Well, on our podcast, Throwback Trivia Takedown, you might just find that out, as well as some other things about the 70s, 80s, and 90s. We're a nostalgic-based trivia show that pits two challengers head-to-head in a duel of the decades, with categories ranging from movies, TV, and music, to slang, food, and fashion, you're sure to get the best in retro-themed trivia. So strap on your jelly shoes, grab a surge, and walk like an Egyptian to your favorite podcast app and check out Throwback Trivia Takedown. I heard even Mikey likes it. And now, back to the show. 
I'd like to list off uh, some of those movies that came out in 86 and see if you recognize them or not. Okay. I'll list all the movies that came out in 86. Yeah. According to Wikipedia's list of theatrical releases, uh, they were released by Canon. So they were not necessarily produced by Canon, but they were released by Canon. I think that's what that means when it says 46. Like they were buying other movies and putting I, them out, right? I think so, yeah. It has to be. I mean, they can't possibly produce that many movies. Yeah, and then we when we get to our top five, we're going to legit say our top five Canon movies where the Canon logo pops up. Right? Yeah. But in 86, Canon helped release a movie called Teresa. Uh, Dirty War, haven't heard either of those. No. Manhattan Project, yes. have. Yeah. Basic Training. Mm, maybe if I saw the cover. Right. And again, I'm stressing Canon helped release these. They didn't necessarily produce them. Highlander, mm. Thunder Run, no. maybe I haven't heard of that. The Hitcher, obviously. Yeah. Never Too Young to Die. Yes. Robotech the Movie. <laughs> what? Yep. I mean, they helped release these films. They they released Robotech the movie, uh, I think probably stateside. Uh, De Commandant, but there was three Ks in that. De KKK Commandant. Awesome. <laughs> uh, La Dernière Image. Nope. Repetence. Nope. That So those are from 86. So those movies were like released by Canon in 86. Uh, but then these are movies that Canon proper, Canon produced 86 movies, okay? Really quick. Starting in January of 86. Kimura, A Story of Streets, Women and Crime. Ever heard of that? Nope. Delta Force. Yep. Of course. Link. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I should know the cover for that, too. Yeah. I think Elizabeth Shue is in that, actually. Yeah. The Naked Cage. Uh, oh, that's the Women in Prison movie, right? Yes. Field of Honor. No. America 3000. I know the cover for it. POW, The Escape. I know the cover for that, too. Murphy's Law. That, uh, I think, just came out. Someone just put it out on Blu-ray, maybe MVD. Might have actually been 4K. But, yeah, that's with, um, what's her name from Witchboard? Uh, uh, Tata for now. Yes, it is. And Roadhouse. Yes. And, of course, Charles Bronson. Who yes. Michael Dudikoff is a big fan of, by the way. He yeah, that's that a zero. <laughs> Old Charlie. Pirates. Yeah. Roman Polanski's Pirates. Yes. Uh, that I remember having the VHS at the video store and staring at it. And uh, who is that Bob Hoskins on the cover with his big no. beard or something? No, it's like um, Walter Matthau or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> but I remember it. Yeah, I never saw it. Zero desire, zero desire to see that film. I think yeah. Christopher Atkins might be in that movie from uh, from from Blue Lagoon. Okay. Okay, so th- this is that's May, Dangerously Close. That's an Albert Pune film. Okay, uh, it's a good movie if anyone's never seen it. I highly recommend you check that out. Cobra. Yes. Obviously. Yeah. Have you heard of Cobra? Yeah. <laughs> if not, <laughs> check out Two Dollar Late Fees month long <laughs> tribute to Cobra. Invaders from Mars. Yes, I, a movie that I actually really like. Me too. Lightning the White Stallion. No, never heard of it. I feel like that might have been, yeah. I, I remember seeing the box cover box cover for that. Detective School Dropouts. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> We're only in August, by the way. Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2. Yes, yep. Othello. Yeah. 
Avenging Force. Yep, I've seen that. Uh, Michael Dudikoff. That was yep. supposed to be, uh, I think, the sequel to Delta Force. Okay, okay. I think. 52 Pickup. I've never seen it, but I, I know the cover. and I Yeah, it's the one with Roy Scheider on the cover. Yep, yeah. yep. You definitely should check that out. I believe, and, and here's the thing about Avenging Force, which I think it's the sequel to Delta Force or it was a continuation. It's something connected to one one of the franchises. Uh, but Delta Force came out earlier that year, February, right? Um, Castaway. I don't think that is the one with uh, Madonna in it. No, I don't think so either. The one with Tom Hanks. But also to your point um, about Delta Force, you know, if that was a sequel, Avenging Force, if it's a sequel to Delta Force, uh, Breaking, like, they made that in 12 weeks. Like, they were shop- shopping it 12 weeks after they started shooting it. Like, that's insane. That's insane. I, and, and I'm going to correct myself because it just came to me. It, it was actually the um, sequel to Invasion USA. Oh, okay. Got it. All right. Which came out, I think, the year before. But okay. still. Uh, Firewalker. Yes. I, yep. I know that's uh, Louis Gossett Jr. and Chuck Norris, right? Yes. And Duet for One. Okay. Hmm. So that's directed by um, Tom Kapinski, who's interviewed also in this documentary, who seems very sad and a little bitter about his his uh, relationship with Hollywood. But those all those movies that I just listed came out in 86 under the canon banner. Those are canon proper films. Right. And and how many of those like were blockbusters or were like, you know, like just massive success? I'd say I'm guessing I'm guessing maybe two of those. And maybe and we're and you're we're referring to like a very tame version of the term blockbuster um, I mean, because I, I think that say, means something bigger in late 70s, you know. I mean, decent, decent box office, Cobra and Delta Force, I would say, out of those two. And that's only because one is Chuck Norris and the other one's yeah. Sylvester Stallone. Yeah. So, you know, they're they're churning out all these movies and, and no one's going to that. Well, I mean, some people, but they're not making their money back. And so it's the story that goes on through this whole documentary. Ultimately, at the end, though, I just want to say it's really sad. Um I'm just going to spoil this because they're interviewed throughout Yoram and Menahem currently in 2014. And then they're brought together at the end. Yeah. And it is such a boogie nights moment where like it's the scene where Dirk Diggler goes and sees Jack and wants to like restart his career. And Jack just is, gives him a, you know, Dirk's on on bad. Dirk has fallen on bad times, and Jack's there to give him a hug. And it looks it's like Menahem and Yoram, and Yoram is Burt Reynolds' character, Jack. Yeah, giving Menahem a hug. Like I'm just, I'm just here for you, man. There's nothing I can do for you yeah. at this stage of your life, but I'm just here to be your friend. Yeah, yeah. yeah That's it what did, it feels like. There was some warmth at the end that that I did enjoy, and uh, you know, and to look at the two of them together like sort of over the course of their life especially where they sort of ended up in the success and you can even just see it in like their 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 office sizes and everything you know yeah Yoram doesn't need Menahem to succeed but Menahem absolutely needs Yoram to succeed or even just survive even just create 
he needs Yoram because you need money. It doesn't matter what, you know, anyone says, you know, you need money to make movies. It just has to happen. And especially since Menahem has, you know, he has movies that he wants to make that are big, big concepts and everything. Um, but Yoram definitely, you can tell, doesn't need Menahem at this point. Um, you know, I hope that, no. I don't even know, actually, I don't even know if uh, Menahem's still alive at this point. Like, this movie was made 10 years ago. Like, holy crap, like, it's already 10 years old, and I, I didn't even feel like it. Um, yeah, Mena- Menahem uh, died in the same year. Uh, okay, that's what I thought. 2014 at the age of 85. Yeah, I kind of had a feeling he 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 already had already passed. Um, although it's weird because the the movie didn't have any kind of dedicated to him or anything at the end, so he must have passed after the movie was you know struck and done and everything. Which is kind of weird because I feel like they could have released it after the fact, but yeah, or put a you know some sort of in memoriam or you know to to our you know, to Menahem, you know, or something like that. But um, Yoram, Yoram is 80 years old. So, so Menahem uh, was well, older. Be, Yoram will be 80 this year. Okay. Yeah, Menahem was born, uh, Yoram was born in 43. Menahem was born in 29. He died at the age of 85. Oh, so wow. he That's would have been, you know, 83 or 93 at, at this point, at this, this year, if he was yeah. still alive. Yeah. Yeah, no, dude. And, and, like you said, this documentary, it does a good job, and it does focus on the two of them, as it should, because it's called the Go-Go Boys, and that is, like, what they were referred to as, uh, especially, like, on the cover of Newsweek. Like, that's how big they got. I mean, that's Newsweek how... back then was huge. Yeah, so, ex- yeah. exactly. And, and just like, and he even mentions, Manahem even says, like, you know, at the time, like, who's going to be on the cover of Newsweek? It's, like, politicians. It's, like, the president of the United States. And then it's us. And it's like, you know what I mean? Like, like, and I do believe that they shook things up. They came into town like a whirlwind. And, you know, and they're not, they weren't insiders. You know what I mean? They, they, they're outsiders coming in. And I do believe that probably ruffled some feathers. Now, there was no mention of that from any of anybody else talking about it. The only other head was that one guy, Pollock. <laughs> fucking catfish with his two eyes looking in two different directions. Um, you know, he was the only one that seemed like a, like another studio head that sort of talked about them. Um, but he never really said like, I mean, he did say like, you know, 46 movies in one year, that's too many, you know, you can't possibly have quality in that. But he also didn't really say what the scuttlebutt was internally around. Cause you know, all those fucking heads, they're all meeting up at their ritzy, clubs and everything and you know they had discussions about who is this fucking Menahem Yoram coming in and think they can fucking create a new studio system you know like right. like in the early you know 20s and 30s like they were trying to create an old school studio system like they and I forget this fact I'm always sort of shocked by this there were canon movie theaters outside the US they also had a huge portion of their income came from actually owning movie theaters that would just show their movies and that's how the old studio system used to be like mgm would own their theaters and those theaters would only show mgm movies and stuff and then that you know that changed and if um yeah famously uh sorry i didn't mean to cut you off but i did because i just did uh avco avco embassy famously had a movie theater on wilshire here for decades uh that was just like that. It was one of the last ones I remember seeing driving up and down Wilshire going, Oh, that's cool that that 
that's that theater is named after a studio. That's You're pretty right. cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, and there's a good podcast out there that kind of documents um, the old studio system movies. I think it's uh, We Must Remember This or you, you Must Remember This. What the fuck's that thing called? Uh, ah, yeah. shit. She's like a film historian. Um, you can, you guys can find. I'm sorry for whoever's driving off the road right now, screaming at me. Um, God damn it! Well, you can find it. It's a great too, film so. historian podcast, and she talks a lot about the studio system. If you want, uh, uh, if you want to know about that, um, but that was like that studio system was. You know, they got rid of that, and I think like the 40s or something, or the 50s, and now Menahem and Yoram are trying to bring it back, and for a minute. It's kind of successful. Like, they're kind of doing things right. So I have to imagine that ruffled people's feathers. Oh, yeah, because they're putting out, they're putting their movies in the theaters, right, making their money. But it didn't last for very long. And, and you know, what what is the, all the reasoning behind that? It's not really discussed. Uh, but But there's enough of it where you go, these guys just got too big for, they just, Menahem is really the, ultimately the reason why they went downhill. Yeah. Not Yoram. It's no, no, not at all Yoram. Yoram, if anything, why. if anything, if Yoram, if Menahem listened to Yoram more and slowed down, I think they would have made better decisions, or I think Menahem would have made better decisions. Um, but I do have to respect Yoram because it seems like up until they quote unquote got the divorce because that's what they sort of refer to it as. Yeah. Yoram backed him all the time. Like, even if he, you know, I, I I got the sense that Yoram would advise, but then if Menahem, he would still back Menahem's play. And that yeah. worked for a while, but it's not, it doesn't seem like it's a recipe for long, like longevity, though. Totally agree. Totally agree. Um, I want to point out, too, that in the Electric Boogaloo documentary, it was uh, Marina Citrus, uh, or Sirtis, Marina Sirtis, in the is in the documentary from Star Trek. That's right. She's the one who uh, who brings up the uh, the not so happy moment with Menahem. That doc, by the way, is filled with interviews with with a lot of people that we love, including Diane Franklin, Lucinda Dickey, Toby Hooper, uh, Robert Forrester, just a, a plethora. Franco Nero, um, and so. It's just a different perspective of the Go-Go Boys. Yeah. The Go-Go Boys in particular, though, like if it wasn't for these guys and Eli Roth, as much as I'm not a huge fan of him as a filmmaker, uh, he did sum up kind of, I think, our feelings or most people's feelings about the Go-Go Boys when he said that, you know, every 12, 13, 14-year-old kid you know, got to see the stuff they wanted to see on screen and they loved it, you know, and it kind of hurt his feelings when people would bash these movies because um, he loved these movies that they put out and still does. You and know, even and someone even yeah. mentions, um, you know, Eli Roth even mentions, you know, him and Tarantino, like Tarantino, like owns like a 35 millimeter print of Ninja three, the domination. And he's like, yo, come over here and let's watch this. And he's like, we watched it in this theater. So we know that was the new Beverly. Um, but it's like, and, and even Eli Roth brings it up, but it's like, this of is one of the did. greatest directors in the world. And, and in Quentin Tarantino, and obviously that's debatable, but, and it, he is a powerful director and a very artistic one. And he loves Canon movies. And I think that, yeah, I think us, of a certain age, 
we grew up with canon movies and i love a lot of them a lot of them i haven't seen but a lot of them that i have seen if i've seen it i pretty much freaking love it you know except for yeah. last american virgin <laughs> well, and cyborg um, and cyborg <laughs> and cyborg now i in in a really quickly well i was gonna bash eli roth but i Do won't it. bash eli roth I, of course eli roth has to bring up Quentin Tarantino, because that's who Eli Roth is. He's always got to bring up Quentin Tarantino when, you know, you yeah. oh, know, I'm friends with Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, I get it. But <laughs> Tarantino. Yeah. He, if you go on like any interview, it, it just type in Tarantino Canon films. He is always talking about his love of Canon movies. So, uh, I fully respect Tarantino as a filmmaker. I think he's an amazing auteur. I think he's one of the greatest of all time. And I think his depth of knowledge is fantastic. And his perspective is the similar perspective that we have, where it's like these movies are are polished or are not polished, but they have a charm about them. There's a there's a there's a there's a a, a twinkle in these movies where you're like the people making this movie loved the idea, at least of this movie, whether at the end of the day, the execution was what they expected it's almost not important at that point. <laughs> Do you think Death Proof is the most canon Tarantino film? Oh, that's a good question. Um, or I guess, if, what would you consider the most canon Tarantino film? Well, because it's funny, because I think Death Proof is his worst movie that he made. Uh, if I had to rank them, I would probably put Death Proof towards the bottom, okay. unfortunately. Overall, I, I that there's parts of Death Proof I... Death poop. <laughs> death poop. There's, part, <laughs> death poop. There's parts of death proof that I love. I just think it's, it's 30. Well, if it was a Canon movie, it'd be 90 minutes long versus like two hours, mm-hmm. is which it, is what I think it is. Um, man, I think reservoir dogs is his Canon movie. Okay. Okay. You know, and I think it's a mixture between over the top and it's an art house film too. Like, which is what Canon was. They were trying to do both. Yeah. And I okay. feel like it's a, it's a marriage between the two. Um, but you said it so perfectly. You're like, you know, the movies that Canon made that you've seen that you love, right, with the exception of a couple. We should get into this. What are your top five? Why don't we go back and forth? Yeah. yeah. In order, right? Yeah. We did rank them numerically, correct? Yes. Like, yes. Okay. Five. Yeah. So, you want to start with number five and then go down to one and uh, I'll I'll start? Yeah. So, yeah, Corey, you, why don't you start and why don't you tell me what your number five all-time canon movie is i do want to give an honorable mention because as i was looking through the wikipedia you know the listing everything and it was nice because they broke it down like pre you know canon post canon and everything i didn't realize that show dc follies was produced by canon wow okay are we allowed one one honorable mention then yeah given yeah you give your honor well first of all did you ever watch dc follies with uh, i did I did. Me too. I loved that show back in the day. Yeah, me too. I did too. <laughs> of course we did. Yeah, so, so that's that's act. my honorable mention is DC Follies. That's your honorable mention. Okay, so, okay, fine. Uh, um, my, me, mine was tough. Mine was really tough. My honorable mention is going to be over the top. Um, it, it, was a cl- it, it just got pushed out of the top five. Uh, I met Big Rick Zumwalt. Actually, you can go to my Instagram page and see a photo of me arm wrestling Big Rick Zumwalt when I was like 11. Yeah, I, I know. And um, <laughs> I have autographed pictures from when it came out on VHS. I remember seeing it in the theater. I was, just love that movie so much. Was he nice in person? 
he was the nicest guy. And, you know, this, they talk about the story of why Over the Top didn't do well uh, in the documentary. And I had no problem with it. I loved it and because I think I related a little bit to the main kid and uh, my relationship with my dad. So, yeah, Over the Top is not my honorable mention. Okay. And by the way, yeah, Over the Top was probably the second movie they spent the most time with. But it's still not a lot. I really wish they had maybe talked to Lucinda Dickey for, for break-in and stuff like that. But, no, they really did. The only, like you said, the only people we really got – we're uh, Dudikoff. We got a little bit of uh, Drago for Billy Drago for like a second. Yeah, rest in peace. I know. Yeah, what a bummer. Rips. I would have loved to see more with him. Yeah, I know. But Me yeah, too. it's funny when you've got the the star of your movie coming out and promoting it by saying, this is not what you guys expected. It's, this is not the movie you think it's going to be. Right. That's not a good sign. No, no, that's never a good sign. So number five is a movie that I haven't seen in a, in a while, but I loved as a kid. Also very scared as a kid. Written by Dan O'Bannon and directed by Toby Hooper, I loved Invaders from Mars. That's my number five. Creepy as hell. Yeah. That's a great movie. Very creepy. It, 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 and again, it's these movies are not perfect. There's like a slow patch in it, I think, midway through. Yeah. But yeah. man, it is so creepy. Uh, his dad, when his dad turns into an alien. Yeah, like, dude. Oofa. Yeah. All right. Okay. What is your number five? My number five will come as no surprise to you, Invasion USA. Well, that's perfect, because that's my number four. Oh, nice. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I remember seeing, I could have gone to see Summer Rental. I was supposed to see Summer Rental because it was PG-13, and my friend at the time talked me into sneaking in to go see Invasion USA at the Meridian Quad, at the the Meridian Quad in San Jose, California, Meridian Quad 6, sneaking into Invasion USA to go see that, and it changed my life. Dude, that movie will ever forever hold a place in my heart for when Rostov fucking pushes that, like knocks that lady's head into the cocaine thing and shoots Billy Drago and shoots his dick off, shoots his fucking dick off. And as Billy Drago's like dying there, he then just tosses that lady out the window who's in agony. She's going to die anyways (laughs) because of her fucking, the snort thing is in her nose. I mean, what an incredible scene. I truly believe that is one of my favorite 45 seconds of movie ever made yeah it's brilliant it is it is classic canon from start to finish yeah yeah so that's my number four invasion usa by the way three movies we've covered on pad are in my top five of canon so number four is invasion usa what is your number four that's really funny that's really funny well my number four is treasure of the four crowns Didn't make mine, but I had a suspicion it was going to make yours. When it came out on Kino Blu-ray last year, I was like, the gods have spoken. I, listen to the breakdown, guys. You know how much I love this movie. So it <laughs> goes without saying. I mean, dude, Treasure and, of the Four Condors. And, and don't get me wrong. I mean, it's <laughs> Condoms. It's in my top ten canon. Like, don't get me wrong. I loved it. It's the most canon movie that we did, that we've covered, and it is a wild ride. And always, I will always give mad props to Kino for putting the, the, the Blu-ray out with the anamorphic 3D, the blue and red 3D, and up, like, up-converted normal 3D. I'm like, that, that is 
way too much effort to put into that movie right there you know totally agree and it was one of those movies that i've held on to uh in my psyche since childhood and it did not let me down no it was fun as hell man it was fun as hell hell yeah Uh, my number three is a movie that i broke down and that is uh with uh, the beautiful lucinda dickey ninja three the domination i think it's not my number one but for me, and the thing is, like, I know my number one is a canon movie, and the same for number two. But this is the movie that I think of when I immediate when I think of canon and the canon logo and what canon movies mean. Ninja Three: The Domination I think is the perfect example of a canon movie because it's fun, it's awesome, but it makes no fucking sense whatsoever. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed, and it's. It's such a wild ride, and I'm so glad that you brought it to the table because it was it was. Uh, I feel like we're doing like a a wrap up. And if you want more wrap up <laughs> after dark, go to our Patreon, Patreon.com/slash/podcastingafterdark for wrap up, Carpenter Factor, and more. Um, yeah, it's so much fun. It's so much fun. All right, buddy. What is your number three? My number three is Masters of the Universe. Okay, that was probably my number six. I did the honorable mention, the DC Follies, just because I was shocked by it. Um, Dude, I know that Masters of the Universe gets a bad rap, but I kind of loved it as a kid, and I am kind of of chomping at the bit to rewatch it, to be honest with you. You should. I have it on Blu-ray. I think Warner Brothers put out like a $6.99 Blu-ray. It's great to watch again. It's super nostalgic. It's when you just take into account all that they could do with their limitations uh, and what they did do. It's fun. It's it's and and Frank Langella is one of the best villains ever. He's a great Skeletor and they have the toys out now that look just like them. So you can finally I mean, that's all I wanted as a kid was a Dolph Lundgren looking He-Man he personifies He-Man uh, in that film. He's good. It's good. It's a it's a fun movie. It totally holds up. All the people that bash it just don't get the fact that it's like they did their best. You know, they did their best. I always that's canon for you. For you, they did their best. <laughs> I always love the fact that Frank Langella, like Skeletor, was one of his favorite characters he's ever played. He never bashed that movie. He only no. gave it praise. And I'm like, you're like a quote-unquote real actor. And, like, you were like, you're like, you know, people were like, I remember that. Like, people would ask him, like, what was your favorite role? He's like, Skeletor. I fucking love that movie. I'm like, that's cool, man. You're cool. Yeah, we interviewed Chelsea Field last yeah. year when we were uh, discussing Harley Davidson and the Marlboro Man, and she talked about her love of Tila. She loved making that movie. Yeah. She had a good experience on it. Yeah, and I remember as a kid, man, what was that one bad guy, snake guy that had, like, the armor? The only one that Skeletor yeah. killed because they failed, you know? And I was like, and he was my favorite one. And as a kid, when I saw that happen, I immediately was like, oh, so it's kind of like Boba Fett. My favorite one dies. And I realized that I was a jinx to any character that I loved was going to die. <laughs> yeah, I could see that. I'll make sure I I'll make sure I don't mention who my favorite characters are for any franchises. <laughs> if a movie comes out, we're gonna go see it. Exactly. Um, What's your number two? Are we in new and in into the twos now? We are, and I kind of have a feeling that my number two is your number one, and I'm talking about Mortal Kombat the movie, aka Bloodsport. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, it's my number one. I, f- I figured. I figured. Um, it's got to be my number one. Yeah, it's got to be. Yeah, I figured. And, and and we'll talk about your number two in a second. But, we'll, but you know, you join in the conversation on this one here. Um, dude, I mean, I love that movie as a kid. And I know that. I, I know I know that you and Jeff always kind of loved it more than me, but so I guess that statement doesn't really matter to anyone outside of you, me, and Jeff. Um, but I did watch that movie a shit ton as a kid. I loved it. Um, Bloodsport is fucking Mortal Kombat the movie. I, I love it. I love the idea. It's such a simple premise, but it just it works so well. And then, you know, Bolo Young, fucking JCVD, Ogre, you know, from, from Revenge of the Nerds. Ray Jackson. Yep. It's just, it's a, man, it's, it's just a fun movie from beginning to end. It is. The soundtrack is phenomenal. Stan Bush is on there, too. Kumite, Kumite. You know, it's like, it's got every box. The fact that it, it, they slap a based on a true story on there, even though it's far from it. <laughs> anything from it. I actually did an interview with one of the screenwriters, uh, Sheldon Ledich, who uh, worked a lot with, with JCVD. He, he has funny story about stories about the original, the real Frank Dukes uh, and what a con man that guy is. But anyways, man, yeah. Bloodsport. I can watch that anytime. Yeah. And it, and it, and it brings back all the memories of sitting in a theater as a kid wanting to take karate because I saw that movie. I can tell you that I did not see Bloodsport in the theater as a kid. Um, I, you know, I don't think my dad was a big like martial arts movie kind of guy. Like we would see stuff more like Navy SEALs or probably Delta Force and stuff like that. Yeah. I don't remember him really taking me to many uh, Karate Man movies. You know, <laughs> my mom took me to Karate Man movies. Of course, of course. Yeah. Uh, so wait, so what's your number two then? So my number two. I actually did not see until this year. And then I saw it and I said, this might be one of my all-time favorite movies, period. It's from 1985. It's called Thunder Alley. Jill Sholin has a small role in it. Actually, she's the lead actress in the film. Uh, Thunder Alley stars Roger Wilson and um, Leif Garrett. Oh, and it's also got Leaf Garrett, man. <laughs> Clancy Brown is in it. It's one of his first movies Clancy Brown ever did. Uh, it is a rock and roll story. Uh, actually, and then the other actor that's in it who plays uh, Roger Wilson's the lead actor. And not to be confused with 1967's Thunder Alley with Annette Fun- uh, Funicello. No, no, no. Do not definitely do not get it confused with that. But or, or Wilson, Thunder Alley, the 1994 TV series with Ed Asner. Yes, please do not do that either. Um, there, there's another actor in it named Scott McGinnis who steals the show. He was in Secret Admirer. I think he was in 315, the moment of truth that we broke down on our on podcasting after dark. Um, the movie's uh, about a rock and roll uh, singer, guitar player who hooks up with Leif Garrett's band uh, because of Scott McGinnis, who's like his best buddy and uh, Leif Garrett. And, and like they go on the road and, and, and um, Clancy Brown is like, they're kind of roadie basically. And Jill Sholin is the love interest to Roger Wilson's character. The music is awesome. I posted a bunch of it on $2 late fees um, Saturday soundtrack page on Instagram uh it's so good it's it's 
it's classic canon. It's got everything you want, if you know what I mean, Corey. Um, nice. <laughs> you should check it out. It's really, really good. It's a really, it's, it's dare I say, one of the best uh, canon films. There's just little things here and there that don't make it perfect, you know, and that's canon in a nutshell. Little yeah. things here and there that just don't make it like that Academy Award caliber type movie. But anyways, yeah. I, I love Thunder Alley. That's my number two, and you know what my n- number one is. So that's right. Can I guess what your number one is? Yeah, you probably can. For two good reasons. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, one of them being Patrick Stewart, and of course the other one being, um, what's that guy? Steve Rails back. Steve. Yes. Rails. Yes. That's Life Force. Would it be Life Force? It would be Life Force, uh, the movie that is famously Patrick Stewart's first on-screen kiss in, in a movie, and it's with <laughs> Rails back. I love it. I love how that will always be a fact. But wow. yes, Matilda May, unreal. Everything about it is unreal. And uh, go back and listen. I say that. It was like season one. It was so early on that we did Life Force that sometimes I'm even hesitant to sort of like push people all the way back there. But uh, go go listen to season one. Go listen to Life Force. We had a great time breaking that one down. Yeah, that one was so much fun. And Life Force is, is a really great movie. There's just moments where it lags a little bit. It slows down. Yeah. I think it's like an hour and 41 minutes or something like that. So it, it, like if it would just tighten a little bit more. Uh, but man, what a fun ride that movie is. Yeah. And yeah, that's classic canon. Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. People yeah. are probably going to go, what about that movie? Yeah, It's great. These are our top five. So what are your guys' top five canon movies? Go to our Instagram and, and interact with us. Don't go anywhere else. Just let's let's compress some of our social media doings yeah just go to instagram okay guys um great top five for you yeah and i agree buddy thank you thank you uh go go boys is a i mean go go boys is a film that you guys should seek out because uh you know we need to hear the stories of these guys who made these movies but can I say it's probably not a complete picture? So go watch this and also Electric Boogaloo um, to get. Yeah, you can get Electric Boogaloo at your bargain bin at a Walmart. So uh, and I think it's free <laughs> no on joke. YouTube too, right? Like it's, yeah, it's it, it's free. It's free to watch on on YouTube and and um, everywhere. So, but I definitely do, watch both. But I do feel like I got a bit more out of this um, as far as like their their backstory. I guess yeah. I, I think what I really enjoyed more about Go Go Boys was seeing their early Tel Aviv stuff. Uh, you know, seeing where they came from, what kind of and because I, I mean that helps like to inform you of where they were going because I do believe that they wanted always to make you know respectable films, um, but you know, uh, lemon popsicle was their breakout. And then they kind of, they had a, a format of like, okay, well we know what works now, you know, and they kind of even remake it. And then like, you know, but, but that being said, they don't follow a formula because every movie is so dramatically different. But I think overall watch both. I very much enjoy electric boogaloo, but if I could recommend one or the other, I, I think I like this one a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think it it's important to note, too, that these guys were outside of the studio system in a time when we are fighting, you know, to reform these studios because they suck <laughs> the way they're being run. Still do. So, you know, uh, uh, yeah, I think you guys 
go watch both. And again, Gogo Boys is more of an intimate portrait of these two um, dreamers whose dreams came true for a little while. And one still continues to be. Yeah. And one's unfortunately six feet under. <laughs> yes. So uh, he, he doesn't care what we say about him at this point. No, I do. This is my spirit from the grave coming back to tell you that that was a great way of explaining. Uh, you know, we don't talk about failures here, but we talk about the good things. And the good things we must talk about is Podcasting After Dark has a Patreon page that you should all check out. Go to patreon.com uh, slash Podcasting After Dark for the Carpenter Factor. I never worked with John Carpenter. I always wanted to. And then he, then he uh, I don't know. We, we could have made so many movies together. 100 film together. Um, and go to patreon.com, Podcasting After Dark. Uh, is for the Carpenter Factor, Wrap Up After Dark, the the interviews after dark that are behind the paywall. So much great stuff. Uh, and, 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 and make sure that if you go on Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating. Anything below five-star, just don't even do it. If you're going to not to go, if you go on there saying, this is not good, we don't accept that. No, we, we just don't, don't accept listen that. We it. don't accept that at all. <laughs> so just give us five star. And, uh, you know, on Spotify, you can leave comment now too and, and give us thumbs up and all that good stuff. And go to our Instagram, uh, Sleazy C, the, the king of sleaze. I thought I was the king of sleaze. What are you going to say next that I did not fill in blanks of? <laughs> I, I'm not going to try to do the Yoram, but I'm going to say, I'm going to reiterate everything Menachem just said <laughs> and say uh, everything applies to $2 late fee as well. So swing on over to $2LateFee.com. Swing on over to Patreon.com slash $2LateFee. Uh, check out the Instagram. Leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Leave a five-star review on Spotify for those guys over there. Leave uh, leave a comment and everything. And, oh, yeah. Uh, We've got we've got big stuff coming uh, with the with guys. You know it's coming. The the crossover event, the pad two dollar fee crossover event. It's coming. The the crossover that everybody's wanted. The, or it, it's it's coming, baby. The crossover, baby. It's coming. <laughs> Do it for me, baby. Like we'll the say age it. of Latin Bowl because you know they're gonna have well, not only the crossover event uh, of the century is gonna happen, but there's also gonna be a little bit of wrestling with uh, territory marks. Uh, C is going to join Paul London and Zach Schaefer on that show, baby. And it's going to have a good old time. But um, I just want to say really quickly, though, that uh, currently on $2 Life, they have the uh, Ruskies episode. They're talking to uh, Whip Hubley, uh, relation to Season Hubley. Yes, yes. And uh, you want to check that out because, you know, he says a lot of bad things about Steven Seagal in one of the $2 <laughs> question segments. Well, not bad, but, you know, not good, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> Fantastic. Fucking awesome. All right, guys and gals, thank you so much for uh, joining us on the documentary series. Uh, once we uh, hit cut on this, Zach and I are going to start uh, recording our Jodorowsky's Dune episode. So wait for that. That'll be coming soon. And uh, our... What, was, what did we say it was? Augumentary. 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 Fucking yes. terrible. <laughs> Augmented episodes of Podcasting After Dark. <laughs> Fucking terrible branding. All right, but as always... We'll catch you on the dark side. For me, I'm already dead, so it's dark here. <laughs> Thank you.
Be sure to subscribe to Podcasting After Dark and give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Support Podcasting After Dark on Patreon. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Podcasting After Dark. And visit us next time for another installment of Podcasting After Dark with Corey Stevenson and Zach Schaefer. I'm John, and I'm the host of Action Action. Every week, I'm joined by James. hey And Dustin. Hello. And each week, we review, debate, and rank a different action movie. We're creating the ultimate list of action movies. From awful to awesome. So if you want to hear three more white guys with beards talk about action movies. And argue about where they belong on our list. And decide you hate us because we've made fun of your favorite movie. Join us every Tuesday, and you can find us on your favorite podcatcher. And Steven Seagal mm. is a joke. <laughs> hey everyone, co-host Corey here. I just wanted to take a quick second and say thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. Without you, Podcasting After Dark would not be possible. If you would like to help the show grow, please consider signing up at patreon.com slash podcastingafterdark. You can also support the show by purchasing one of our awesome t-shirt designs on our merch store at podcastingafterdark.com or by picking up a copy of Seven Winters Alone by David Irons on paperback, hardback, or Kindle. Just search for Seven Winters Alone on Amazon or click on the link in the show notes. A free way to help out is to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Those reviews are huge for us and really helps get the show in front of new listeners. Again, thank you all so much for the love and support you've given us over these past few years. It really means the world to us.